Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as the provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I am joined by Kevin Kelly, co-founder and chief market strategist at Delphi Digital, the premier research firm in digital assets. Kevin, it's good to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Josh. So, Kevin, what did you do before crypto, and and why did you leave your you know equity analyst job, which you'll talk about at Bloomberg, to join the fray here in crypto? Yeah. So prior to crypto, I was working as a U.S. equity strategist, uh, which is basically just fancy talk for um, someone who looks at it, analyzes, and researches global stock market trends, essentially. And so. I actually stumbled across Bitcoin uh, back in my undergrad um, college days, and at first, this was this was back in 2013. And at first, to be honest with you, I completely um, dismissed it as you know fake internet magic money. Um, did none of my own due diligence, and uh, and and really just kind of dismissed it. And then as the years went on, you know, it started coming back up on the radar. Uh, probably around 2016, really kind of early 2017 is when I really started to get involved with this with some of my partners. Um, at first, I was just I was just intrigued that this thing hadn't died and hadn't gone away. Um, and again, didn't really know you know a ton about it except for doing some light reading. And so, uh, started to get more interested in it primarily from a global macro standpoint because again, you know my my job at that point was to understand. You know the macroeconomic landscape, how that was going to affect the stock market, and you know give my my expectations or my projections for where I thought it was going to go, and the kind of value proposition of you know something like Bitcoin um, intrigued me, you know almost specifically from that global macro standpoint, and so uh, my journey you know isn't too dissimilar from from some other people in the space who have made that jump from traditional finance, uh, but for me you know as I started to fall down that you know proverbial crypto rabbit hole, you could say. Um, it started to pair that with an outlook for other traditional asset classes and, and quite frankly came to the conclusion that, you know, this space, right, we call it the crypto digital asset space. I mean, I think represents one of the, the greatest growth opportunities we're going to see for at least the next decade. Um, you know, to say that it's on par with the advent of the Internet or, or wireless communication technology being widespread uh, or even you know jo- the joint stock company and the, the invention of um, uh, the joint stock company, I don't think is is too far fetched. Some people uh, certainly might say that that that's a little bit you know exaggerated or ridiculous. But if you think about you know the way in which um, the world is moving right into a much more kind of digital and virtual uh, virtual world, I certainly think that digital assets are going to play you know a huge huge part of that. Um, and there's just going to be really interesting business models that are built on top of some of these decentralized networks and really interesting ways in which um, some of these uh, uh, blockchain or distributed ledger technology native assets actually accrue value. So long story short, it was just a really interesting opportunity. Started off kind of as a hobby, just reading about it and then started falling down that rabbit hole because, again, you know, the outlook for other asset classes, I thought uh, was going to be a bit muted, whereas this was a, a new um, growth opportunity, a new a new technology, um, and a new area that that you know you could really sink your teeth into. 
So b- before we really start to, uh, you know, get into, you know, what you do at Delphi Digital Research and, and, and you know, kind of the differences between, you know, what you did, you know, on equities versus what you're doing on crypto. One question that I have for you, and, and this is, you know, something that, you know, I guess, you know, as, as, a, as a co-founder of, of a crypto company myself, I, I also have an opinion on, but what did the digital asset landscape or what did you anticipate the digital ad- asset landscape looking like when you first entered into a crypto full time when you started Delphi Digital in 2018? I mean, what, what was the ins- institutional business there that you had expected? Uh, was it slower growth? I mean, how, how is your, you know, how is the trajectory of Delphi Digital's growth? you know, compared to what you had, you know, anticipated when you first left your job at Bloomberg and decided to come over into crypto? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think we tried to have pretty realistic expectations about where we thought this space would be, um, you know, one year from from when we quit, three years, five years. And certainly it's a long-term, you know, betting our careers on this is a long-term bet. It's not something um, that's going to be a short-term kind of money-making operation. That being said, you know, one of the, the key kind of catalysts for us uh, launching Delphi was all of our our kind of founding partners um, came from that traditional finance background, right? So myself being a U.S. equity strategist, one of our other partners, uh, two of our other partners being in equity research, so looking at stocks from kind of a bottom-up perspective, our other uh, partners being in you know, leverage finance, uh, hedge fund credit risk. And so what we thought that our value add or proposition to this space could be was um, starting this kind of institutional grade research shop, because when we were doing our own due diligence, we simply didn't find um, the kind of credible or, or, or deep analysis uh, that you would expect to see uh, if you were in other asset classes like the equity market, right? And so that was one of the big kind of catalysts of the genesis uh, of behind um, us launching Delphi. And, and we knew that the institutional presence you know, wasn't going to be there for a while for a number of reasons. One, I mean, the, the space is just, and, and to this day, is still very small. The liquidity profile, a lot of these crypto assets, uh, is is just not conducive for you know large scale institutional investment. Um, another another key uh, point that I'm sure we'll get into in this discussion is just even how, how do you how do you start valuing or thinking about these things, right? How do you start thinking about decentralized networks and these native tokens uh, or crypto assets that sit on top of them and interact within these ecosystems? Um, in order for institutions to come in, you know, they have to understand what it is that they're investing or what they're buying. And so uh, there were a number of reasons why we thought, you know, long story short, that institutions would take a while to get here. I would say compared to when we started to today, the explosion in innovation around um, whether it's just different, you know, token economic structures and models, or even just the different projects that are launching to help kind of build up the infrastructure for this space, I think is actually, you know, accelerated or or grew faster than we expected. Um, The institutional portion of it, or the kind of um, um, big, large, you know, uh, capital pools that we expect to come in, uh, I think it's taking a little bit longer, um, but for good reason. So uh, not sure if that actually fully answers your question, but I would say it's it's it certainly hasn't disappointed in terms of what we expected growth wise you know, when we first jumped you know head first into the space. Yeah, and I think I share you know a similar opinion. I think the profile of the institutions within the space is slightly different than I had anticipated when I when when we first entered. Uh, you know, in terms of you know the majority of of, of capital remaining with you know family offices, uh, you know prop firms and smaller crypto crypto native funds. You know, I, I thought that there would have been, and there are there are a few, but but more traditional quant funds uh, in the space than there are today. But I, I guess I guess pretty similar. 
you know, very impressed by all of the, you know, the growth of the networks, the technologies, but also the solutions uh, being built in the space as it relates to custody and, um, you know, as it relates to to trading and 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 different types of picks and shovels businesses. So, yeah, and I would say, I mean, really quick, us when we first jumped in, I think um, I don't want to say underestimated, you know, that growth potential of the space, but. You know, we certainly were obviously bullish on uh, crypto and digital assets long term, but uh, the more you kind of get involved, and I, I know you and I have had conversations about this, the more you get involved with different project teams and talk. I mean, I, I've met some of the smartest people I've ever come across in my life who are working on projects that most people have never even heard of. And just going through those types of interactions and the more consistent and constant they become, it's it's very difficult. This is what we tell a lot of kind of new institutional uh, type clients who are just trying to understand what the space is about, you know, where the innovation's happening. If you're betting against, you know, this space, then then you better kind of jump, you know, headfirst in and start talking to a lot of the people that are actually building out the infrastructure and to your point, the picks and shovels to support, you know, this new, whether it's parallel financial system or, or world of digital assets, because, you know, by talking to a lot of these people who are literally boots on the ground building this stuff, it's it's almost impossible not to uh, get more bullish on where you think long term this can go because again, there's just so much intellectual talent. Uh, I think you know building, building, yeah. building out this stuff. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, the 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 intellectual capital pool has significantly, significantly expanded, and I think a lot of the, you know, I guess shit coins for lack of better term, <laughs> uh, and and scammy related pro- projects, and and a lot of the you know, garbage that we saw in 2017, 2018, while, while there's still some there has really dissipated. Yeah. Um, and part so of it's part of it's the open source nature of this space too, right? I think what's really interesting is a lot of people, ourselves included, yes, you know, we, we offer uh, paid research, right? So a lot of our, most of our work is behind a paywall, but at the same time, you know, we've put out some, some free reports and every now and then, you know, we'll release some of this stuff for free to the public because, I think it is important to kind of learn about this space in a public setting, right? And a lot of people do that really well. And it almost creates this camaraderie around, you know, we'll call it just the the, the kind of average, you know, uh, crypto investor, the knowledge base that people are able to build up. I think, you know, you can talk about the maturation of markets and how, yes, we don't have a ton of institutional investment today. And, you know, the, the list goes on and on. But I think, you know, just talking to the, the average crypto investor today is much more sophisticated than they were, you know, two or three years ago, right? Because again, I think people are waking up to, to your point, you know, questioning the fundamental value of some of these things. And it's not to say that everything has to have cash flows. You have to be able to come up with some intrinsic value. But I think people are starting to realize that projects that just launched and use the token basically as a way to raise raise capital and now don't really have, you know, plans for either including it or ways in which that token can potentially accrue value long term. I think people are starting to wake up to that and questioning. Uh, uh, the, the, the validity, validity of a lot of the arguments that are being made, right? It's almost like you're guilty until proven innocent in this space now. Whereas, you know, you remember the 2017 ICO boom. I mean, people would throw money literally at anything, anything with a white papers as the joke goes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Just remembering going, you know, on coin market cap in, in 20, 2017 and just seeing these projects, have market caps of four or five hundred million dollars that today are sitting at three four million dollar market caps, which is wild. It's it's sad that a lot of you know investors lost a significant amount of capital, but but I think good that the space is maturing. So so why don't we get into the the meat of things though? So you know at Delphi, you guys 
primarily, um, you know, do sell side research, but you guys do a few other things. So we'd love to hear, you know, a little bit of an explanation on, on what, what is sell side research, what you guys do at Delphi and, and how your job today is different than, than your job when you're, when you're an analyst in the equity space. Yeah, for sure. So, so starting off with, so Delphi to back up, we've got two kind of prongs to the business. The first being the research, which I'll go over in a second. And the second is uh, consulting. And the consulting arm um, actually is, is primarily focused on kind of two parts. One being investors who are coming into this space and, and maybe aren't as interested or in need of a true kind of institutional research product, but uh, they want some type of bespoke research done or even just putting us on, you know, a retainer to, to understand or have a team in which they can talk through some of their thoughts about um, the other kind of larger part of our consulting business is working actually hands on with a lot of different uh, prominent projects to help them, you know, restructure their token econ, things of that nature. So that's kind of the consulting side, the research side, um, w- which is which is something we can certainly you know dig pretty deep into, um, because I think there are a number of differences to your point about, you know, what it is we were doing before this and what we do now. The, the premise of, of kind of sell-side research, right? If you're a sell-side equity analyst, for example, your kind of day-to-day, your job is essentially to track a specific group of companies. Usually they're in the same sector or industry. You develop some type of sector industry expertise. And your job is basically to make investment recommendations to clients, right? You're basically you know, selling ideas, essentially. And on the flip side, you've got your buy-side clients who are you know, digesting that and making uh, investment decisions, hopefully off of what your recommendation is, right? So um, a lot of them work for you know investment managers, hedge funds, pension funds, big kind of you know pools of capital, and so they're basically digesting what you're saying, and, and hopefully they make some type of um, trade and, and make money off of it because that just you know solidifies the credibility and, and brings back um, you know the, the some profitability to you guys. So that's kind of how sell side you know works in, in the equity world. We took a, a, a similar approach. Um, almost as kind of an independent research firm in this space and said, you know, it's it's not a true, you know, sell side model, but it's it's our firm is modeled off of um, that type of work. And so what we do is we've got both kind of the top down perspective, which is a lot of the work that I focus on, which is more kind of macro related, looking at kind of putting, you know, Bitcoin and some of these you know larger crypto assets or the, the broader crypto and digital asset space in perspective, um, uh, talking with a, a number of um, kind of, you know, more traditional uh, investors and clients to understand how to not only value these things, but think about this in a multi-asset portfolio sense. But we've also got the bottom-up perspective, which is a lot of the token-specific research reports that we'll do. And so, you know, we can get into to, to kind of the differences between evaluating, you know, a stock versus, you know, a crypto asset or project. But I would say some of the kind of high-level big differences is uh, one. I mean, the liquidity profile of a lot of these crypto assets, as I mentioned. You know, certainly not um, not too conducive for for your large kind of institutional investment. Uh, but I would say probably the, the one of the biggest differences, at least from my perspective, is there aren't really well established rules or consensus around how to evaluate crypto assets, right? So when when you're when you're an equity analyst, there's a number of different metrics where you kind of almost know the rules of the game, right? So you're looking at things like you know earnings growth or EPS growth. You're looking at free cash flows. You're looking at Top line revenues. You're looking at different valuation metrics, like or, or pricing multiples, like a, a price to earnings ratio, right? And these are, I would say, you know, very well established um, uh, metrics that people follow and make decisions off of because there, you know, there, there's there's a common consensus. Whereas in crypto, you know, as, as you and I both know, there isn't really established fundamental metrics or indicators that people 
um, consistently use, right? And there's been some, definitely some, uh, I guess you could say convergence around a few things, like you've got your, your NBT, your network value transactions, uh, those types of ratios, your MVRVs, but then there's also your more abstract kind of be, call them behavioral type metrics, right? So you could look at something like a Metcalf's law or analyzing, you know, UTX holder trends, which is something we do a lot of work on. So I'd say, you know, the, the gist of it being there aren't really established rules within this space. And so it, it's both a challenge, but an opportunity that, that we take, you know, a lot of pride in to help try and pioneer the way in which people are starting to think about the valuation, you know, of this space and what it can potentially become. Yeah, and I'm I'm very very eager and and trying to you know hold myself for jumping into the you know those types <laughs> of things quite quite yet, but you know very excited to get your opinion on 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 what are the fundamentals of crypto, right? And and how do you value these things? How do you do due diligence on tokens where where there's no public information about a lot of them? So mm-hmm. you know very excited to dive in. But let's let's stick a little bit you know a couple more questions on on you know your work now versus you know your your work in in more traditional finance. You know, one thing, and I think I alluded to this earlier, but would love to hit on is, is how do your clients today compare to your clients at Bloomberg, right? You know, you know, I asked earlier what the kind of, you know, types of clients that you had were and, and how that compared to your expectations. But but more broadly, I mean, you obviously weren't working with token issuers at, at Bloomberg, but, <laughs> you know, what, what, what is that? What did the client spread look like there? And, and, and how does that, how does that look in this industry? Yeah, for sure. So at Bloomberg, uh, I mean, the, the the most obvious is probably was a much more uh, institutional caliber type client, right? So so my day um, would be, you know, talking on the horn with uh, uh, portfolio managers, people are making asset allocation decisions, trying to understand, you know, the broader market and putting it in perspective. And there was almost, again, a certain kind of language to it, right? I could hop on the phone with portfolio manager and the moment we start talking about, you know, growth trends and valuation metrics, things like that. Um, it was very kind of one to one, right? They picked up on exactly you know what I was talking about, and we we had very fluid, uh, fluid conversations. I would say, so the biggest difference being, you know, our clients now we have a whole kind of actually wide array of clients that we work with um, that I could, that I can list out in a second. But I would say, by and large, it's much more kind of again crypto centric or focused people who are um, um, more in tune and interested in this technology and, and the changes that it provides. But I would also say that our clients today versus, you know, my clients at Bloomberg um, are a bit more engaged too, right? Because again, it's it's a very nascent space. And by definition, you know, it's still a bit too early for anyone to really be able to declare success or um, claim that they were right on, you know, uh, just about anything when it comes to projecting where, where the market's going. And so a lot of our conversations are pretty back and forth. Whereas, for example, if I was at Bloomberg, Someone would call up. Maybe it's a 15-minute conversation about the most recent research report we put out. They had, you know, two or three questions. I basically give them our base case or our outlook, and they say, "Great, thanks. Have a good day," and they and they hang up. These conversations are a lot more engaging and in depth. And I would say, you know, we learn almost as much from our clients as our clients, you know, learn from us, right? So it's it's a really, I would say, rewarding process. Do you do you think that? And I, and I think you alluded to this, but do you think that your clients and in, in in crypto are more knowledgeable about what the businesses or tokens actually do in this space versus, you know, your clients at a Bloomberg. I mean, cause you know, most, you know, most individuals, you know, for example, are, are allocating to ETFs and portfolios and baskets of assets, and they don't have any idea. You know, I, I hold the S and D 500. I don't know what mm-hmm. 99% of these companies do, uh, but it seems like in digital assets, these, you know, these assets are, 
are, I don't want to say held to a higher standard, but the diligence done by individuals on them, I find personally is higher. And I'm wondering if it's the same for you. Yeah, I would say I would say yes and no, um, because there's there's certainly a cohort of people within you know this space, the crypto space, who, to your point, do an incredibly intense and deep due diligence. And that's what's required, right, in order to actually understand, again, this kind of nascent uh, emerging asset class. When it comes to the understanding of individual equities, uh, uh, being an equity and being an equity analyst and talking to, you know, those types of clients. I would say, by and large, on average, those clients have a better understanding of the companies that you're talking about because, in large part, again, because maybe they've been covering them for years, right? So you have people that are on the buy side who, for example, have been, you know, investing or or um, tracking or analyzing oil and gas stocks for the last, you know, two or three decades, right? Whereas, by definition, within this space, you know, if, if you've been in this space for for five years. Oftentimes, you're kind of considered a vet, right? And then the people who are like, "Oh, I bought my first Bitcoin back in 2013," you're like, "Oh my god!" Like that's the you're a veteran of the space. By definition, you can't really have you know this huge kind of um, time advantage, I guess you could say, within your your prior work. So a lot of times, like an oil and gas analyst, like those companies that they track and follow, it's basically second nature, right? They know those business models inside and out. Where I would port it back to crypto and, and why I think these conversations are uh, more engaging, but also people are, are doing a lot of really deep, deep due diligence is because, again, there are no established rules. And they're also trying to understand and, and almost talk through you know, what the potential valuations could be, because this space is a lot more dynamic, right? So there's I won't say there's only so many ways to make money in a business model, but there's only really so many accepted ways when you're on the equity side to kind of value or look at the equity market or individual equities, if that makes sense. Whereas with crypto, you know, tokens and project teams are constantly evaluating, you know, what are the value accrual mechanisms or levers that we can kind of pull to, you know, bootstrap adoption or uh, increase engagement. And those are dynamic in that they can change, right? Because again, one of the pros and, and kind of cons of, of you know token projects is um, or tokens and, or crypto assets themselves, I should say, is that you know it, it's there aren't as many you know actual rights written into ownership there, right? So a lot of these projects do have at their discretion the ability to be able to change some of these models around, which again can be for the better, can be for the worse. And so, you know, long story short, the fact that there aren't you know those well-established kind of rules or metrics in which people can gravitate around. I think requires a deeper level of due diligence within this space, uh, because again, you're trying to understand not only you know how value will accrue, but things like network effects and how will you actually grow to adoption, go to market strategies, and there's just so many different potential uh, drivers or, or things that could influence a token's price long term that we're still discovering. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very a very fair point. Um, you know. You know the, the the goal of this you know podcast is to figure out how to value or define the value, or even come close to an understanding of of how we can begin to value these assets. And you know it's 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 constant, right? It, this is you know going to be a constant mm-hmm. process, I think, for the industry to figure you know to figure this out. And you know I, I think we're getting closer, and and we'll we'll, we'll dive into a few of those uh, you know very shortly. Quickly, you know one one thing that that, that I wanted to know is. Who who do you actually compete with in this space? Uh, are there other firms that are doing similar things? And and do you for your, foresee yourself later having to compete with you know your Deutsche Banks and your JP Morgans of the world, or do you think this will remain mostly a a space for crypto native companies? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I would say, I think what we do at Delphi is a bit unique compared to any potential companies you could you could put on par as competitors. Um, but at the end of the day, that being said, we're, we're, we're competing for eyeballs as well, right? And it is still, you know, largely a small space. Long term, certainly expect, you know, your big banks, some of which you mentioned, uh, to start taking this space and the value uh, proposition and opportunity that it provides a bit more seriously. I mean, quite frankly, right now, it's just a bit too small. And to be honest, until the client demand is there, right, from big institutions, then uh, a lot of these big banks will continue to focus on, um, you know, the, the traditional markets that they cover, and maybe every now and then throwing out a quarterly report or doing some type of, um, you know, analyst call talking about how, you know, Bitcoin's uh, not something that client portfolio should be in. And I won't, I won't name any names, but I think we can all uh, rally around who that would be. Um, but I think long term, we will certainly start to see uh, more kind of sophisticated uh, financial institutions um, and even some of your, you know, traditional uh, independent shops come into the space and start to um, provide similar services or, or port over that, you know, sell side type research model um, here. So long term, I, I certainly don't think it'll just be um, um, siloed to, you know, your crypto or digital asset companies. So let's dive right in. So what what were you able to bring over from, you know, your experience as a more traditional analyst, you know, what research techniques and, and ways of do, do, doing due diligence and, and understanding these projects could you bring over? And what do you have to adapt to the digital currency market? And, and how has that kind of changed over time? Yeah, so I would say, from evaluations, a lot of a lot of what we ported over from you know our, our prior wives or prior jobs uh, has to do with valuation, right? And as you can probably tell just from the, the early parts of this conversation, a lot of our work focuses specifically around you know token economic modeling and valuation, things of that nature. And so we we, we ported over you know your traditional you know DCF type models and looking at cash flows, but you have to tweak those obviously for. The market you're getting into or, or for decentralized networks and the native kind of crypto assets that sit on top of them. And so uh, there are ways in which, you know, you can look at a particular project, let's say, um, that has a, you know, token issuance schedule. And if, you, if you're staking that token or you're running a validator, you are entitled, um, and I put entitled kind of in quotes, because again, there are no real rights to this, but you're basically entitled to um, getting some type of proceed, whether it's from the amount of transactions and the fees that the, the network collects, um, or there is just a preset schedule of the amount of tokens that are, that are being issued. And so you can start to kind of back into potential valuations for these things based on what you expect um, you know, growth to be user adoption, what that cash flow potentially could turn into if the, if the token price um, appreciates or, or depreciates. Um, so there are ways in which you can kind of port that over from the traditional world. I would say what we focus on or where we take that kind of one step further here in some of the, the modeling and the, and the work we do is obviously you have a much larger kind of focus on things like network effects and, you know, nonlinear adoption curves and just the fact that uh, technology, you know, oftentimes changes exponentially, and you still have a very nascent market. Looking at you know new competition, right, and trying to constantly figure out, okay, is this project the best positioned? And I think what's really interesting is is people talk about this kind of liquid VC type model, um, you know, when it when it comes to crypto assets and evaluating them. And I think it's a really interesting kind of kind of thought exercise because in in a lot of ways, many of these 
early stage projects, you know, if you're if you're betting on them now or you're investing in them now, it is that VC type mentality, right? Where you might have only a handful of winners that turn out to be, you know, the next multi-billion or, or tens of billions worth tens of billions of dollars in terms of their network value. And many of them will just fall by the wayside. What's really interesting about this space too is that you do have, you know, this this kind of secondary market for liquidity. And so I think that allows for some really interesting um, um, fund management models even where you're, you're constantly evaluating the new competition that's popping up and you're able to potentially move in and out of these assets, depending on you know, how your thesis changes on one project to the next or on one sector to another sector. The other really important point that I, I don't think we've hit on yet, but that certainly is a, is a key consideration within this space, is things like network security, right? And thinking about you know, the, the benefits of you know, censorship resistance, for example, also can come with a lot of challenges, especially for, you know, if you're talking to a more traditional uh, uh, investor type. And so when we look at and evaluate different projects, network security certainly is, is, is a big one, right? Or, or evaluating the potential security of the protocol that some type of project is building on or leveraging the technology for. And so at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we constantly say that, you know, you could have the best tech or the best token econ, but a combination of both tech and, you know, designing the economic structures or the token economic structures um, in ways that that can accrue value, bootstrap these networks. You kind of have to have both to have a winning solution, right? It's not binary. It's not one or the other. And, you know, there's certainly, um, I would say, levels of, you know, what defines the best token econ or what token econ even is. And that's, again, part of the uh, challenge and opportunity here is, is trying to figure out, you know, how do you think value could accrue to these things? What is it the project's even trying to do? And how does that economic structure, the incentives that these projects have built into um, um, their networks, how does that get them closer to that end goal? So you hit on token economics. Can you can you kind of define that a little bit more? And 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 one question that I had is, does the market actually value token economics? Is that something that you're seeing? Yeah. So yeah, putting a definition around token econ, um, it's 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 kind of actually how it sounds. In my view, it's basically how are how is the network, the programmable kind of network, um, designed from a token issuance or usage standpoint to generate either bootstrapping adoption or um, encouraging you know, new participants to come to and use some type of protocol um, or DAP or um, um, whatever projects uh, the team is building out, right? To use whatever that, whether it's, it's technology or platform is. And so it's, it, and the reason why uh, it's a bit of a loose term or it's, it's, a, it's a bit fluid um, is because it's constantly evolving, right? So you have some projects as I mentioned, where you can look at it on a kind of cash flow basis and you could back into it that way. You have other ones where, I mean, Bitcoin being, you know, obviously the largest. And would, the you, would you say those are, you know, like DeFi, to- DeFi projects and exchange tokens in terms of, you know, cash flow value, valuation? Yeah. And, and exchange tokens, again, a really interesting one. You have some DeFi projects where it's more kind of staking or delegating your tokens to these large validators who then, again, um, are entitled to portions of transaction fees that happen on that network, and you're kind of betting on, you know, whatever network or platform it is that you're, you're the tokens that you're buying, um, them, you know, outperforming other ones, right? Because investing is all about opportunity cost and trying to figure out, you know, where your capital is, is best allocated, and so that's that's one part of it. Then you have really interesting models like exchange tokens, where 
yes, you know, by and large, I think some of them certainly could be potentially classified right as securities. So probably a, a better time than any to say that you know none of this is investment advice by any means. Um, but there are some really interesting ways in which some of these exchanges have started to um, pull these different levers in terms of creating ways in which or new use cases for their token to again try and drive that adoption whether it's you know discounts on trading fees or you know eventually you know being in, in, entitled again to potentially a uh, portion of trading fees that happen on a network or platform um, because you're you know staking them or locking them up right and, and helping provide security um, this gets outside the exchange tokens but providing security for some of these networks or protocols and so you know, just just talking through this with you now, you can see how there are so many different um, variables that can go into understanding a project. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I think we were talking earlier about kind of how you know we first started out and what we're the, the metrics that we even look at compared to you know let's call it two or three years ago um, are vastly different too. Because I think there is certainly still a lot of noise around some of the um, kind of key metrics that some people look at. But at the same time, you know, there aren't really established fundamentals, right? So you're always kind of in this, this limbo or this balance between what do you think the long-term projections of this, this you know, token could be? It's a bit of a VC bet because, again, this might assume that you know, there's no competition that pops up that really destroys this moat or somebody doesn't come out and you know, fork your code and, and create a better incentive type model, which could you know, pull users or pull um, that network effect away from you to somebody else. And so, you know, it is it is just a constant dance between how do you find funda- fundamental value in these things and how do you you know express that in some type of research format. And how, how do you think the the do you think the market is is valuing token economics? I, or do you think it's being overvalued in some cases, undervalued in others? I mean, do you think? And, and look, I guess valuation in it in and of itself is an incredibly difficult question, but. Yeah. Uh, you know, we you know we see things like you know staking being announced, uh, staking support being announced on Coinbase for a token, and the price can can skyrocket, right? So, uh, I mean, do you think that the the reaction of the market makes sense? Uh, do you think it's overblown? Do you think it's undervalued? I mean, does it depend on the type of token economics? Uh, you know, what's what's your general thought? Yeah, I would say in the, in the short term, a lot of it's driven by you know, obviously things like sentiment, right? And, and you know, love giving you guys a plug whenever we can because a lot of the sentiment analysis that we've done, you know, we leverage you know the tie and what you guys do uh, because you know you and I have had conversations about this. A lot of it in the short run is very sentiment driven, right? Which again can lead to discovering really interesting projects if you're looking at something that um, has a lot of you know developer activity um, and you know, maybe is, is a, a sub, you know, $10 million market cap uh, token, but there's a lot of people starting to talk about it and it's starting to get some, uh, some, some large uh, investors or influential people within the crypto space talking about it. You know, those are, they're potentially opportunities to look in and say, oh, maybe there's something here. So in some ways, you know, price can, can almost lead sentiment, but sentiment can also lead price, right? It depends on what the, the project is. And you, you obviously have to have kind of a case by case basis um, when you're looking at some of these things. But is the to, to bring it back to your question, is the market evaluating or, or fully pricing in fundamentals? Um, I, I certainly don't think so. I think part of it for some of these projects is uh, sometimes a matter of just supply and demand, right? You have certain projects that 
uh, almost inherently have created these supply shortages, right? Or they've they've tried to lock up or get people to stake a certain amount of these tokens. Um, one tail provides security, right? It's, it, this isn't saying that this is a malicious thing or a bad thing. This is um, oftentimes what can help bootstrap adoption and actually help drive um, people towards these projects. But you know, when you look at things like circulating supply of tokens and then you evaluate what the potential demand can be, it's it's uh, it's easy to see how some of these large kind of spikes or jumps or, or run ups in some of these um, alternative crypto assets can happen um, because again a lot of you know what what we look at and what comes down to at the end of the day is is a battle between supply and demand where you think you know at a given uh, period of time what something can be worth based on you know those supply and demand dynamics. Yeah, and I mean that's why you know we focus on a lot of of shorter term movement. For me, it's it's been difficult to. You know, see, you know, for example, a token is listed on, you know, a Binance or a Coinbase or a Huobi or anything else, and 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 you know, the the price drives up by one hundred and fifty percent. That that doesn't mean necessarily that the the technology behind the token is improved or that it's providing any value or that the token itself is, has has a utility or, or I guess intrinsic value. It just means that people are expecting others to pay more because now the markets are open to more people. Right. Um, and you also kind of unlock that that liquidity premium, right? Or the, I should say the illiquidity premium um, by by getting, you know, a smaller, let's say, crypto asset listed on, you know, a big exchange like, you know, a Binance or a Coinbase. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, you've alluded to a few different things, right? You talked about UTXO analysis, which is, you know, on-chain data. And, you know, you mentioned sentiment. But really interested in, in hearing what types of data sets you guys are looking at at Delphi and, and how that's changed over time. Yeah, for sure. So I would say um, how that's changed over time. I mean, I remember when we first got into this and like many people, I mean, at least myself, I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, what drove me to this space, to be honest with you, at least in the early days was, you know, the, the volatility of it, right. And the, and, the, and the price fluctuations and the potential growth opportunity. And I'm, you know, not, not going to shy away from the fact that not saying we're here to make a quick buck by any means, but it's certainly what attracted, I think, a lot of people to this space, right? And that's what you almost kind of need. You need, you know, prices and that and that and that big ICO 2017 run up brought a lot of people in, and a lot of pe- some people left, right? And some of the weekends got shaken out, but a lot of us ended up staying, and and for the right reasons. And so when we first launched, you know, we were looking at we we're basically trying to figure out, you know, anything and everything that could drive price. So you're looking at, you know, transaction growth for some of these protocols or um, transaction throughput, you know, and, and and what's interesting is over time as you start to you know really build out these valuation models and start to understand how things can interact. And again, supply, demand, you know, circulating supply. Sometimes, you know, a higher token throughput could actually end up hurting, you know, your, your valuation or the long term potential value accrual of tokens. Um, and so it took us a bit to kind of establish, you know, what you call like a, a, a proper screening system. Right. And looking at things like liquidity and usage and stage of the project. And now that we've been doing this for you know three plus years. I'd say we, we've got a much better um, and more comprehensive view of specific sectors and how these new and existing projects can kind of fit into that, that broader picture. We've also just reviewed and seen a ton of projects that, um, you know, some of which have fallen by the wayside and may have seemed like a great idea at the time, but, but ended up failing to get tra- to gain traction. And so we take, you know, some of the lessons from, from those struggles. Uh, but when it comes to kind of, you know, fundamentals and data sets and, and token economic design, um, you know, I, w- I would say there's a number of different things that we ended up looking at and on the, actually I should, I should backtrack on the developer side of things, you know, what we've, we've taken a keen interest in is again, you know, seeing how much developer activity there is on some of these networks and pairing that with things like sentiment indicators, right? Because and wait, so, so I want to hit on that. So yeah. how do you actually 
track and follow developer activity? Are you just looking at GitHub commits and things like that? Are you are you working with these projects? Are you talking to them directly? I mean, how how are you how are you measuring? Uh, yeah, that's actually that? that's you know that's a really good point that we should back up to. So our interaction with with uh, project teams is is certainly high, especially when we're we're about to um, look to cover something, right? Because I think you alluded to this earlier. There isn't a ton of publicly available information for a lot of these different projects, right? And even when you do come across um, the white papers or even the um, uh, technical documentation, there's still some potential holes that you need to have filled by the team themselves, or that information, quite frankly, could just be stale. And so what we um, and, and a lot of the crypto you know, research analysts in this space uh, tend to do is, is, you know, hop on the horn and, and get, you know, a group chat started with the actual core devs of whatever project it is, because that's where you get this really kind of hands-on understanding of, you know, not only what they're building and you get the the, the, the real-time kind of updates of, of where uh, the status of some of these projects are, but you also can understand the backgrounds of these people, you know, um, what it is that they're trying to build, how active they are. You can you can almost tell, I mean, from these conversations, um, simple things like how excited people are about the projects they're building, right? And, and some of the, the best kind of undervalued ones that we've found um, are ones in which there's this, this almost um, kind of... I won't say secretive nature of it, but it's almost like the, the developers are building something and they're they're excited to release it to the world, but they don't want to do it too soon because you know what they think they're they're creating and what you know we certainly think they're creating um, is something you know revolutionary for lack of a better word. So um, talking with the teams and actually getting that kind of firsthand experience is, is definitely really important. Um, but we'll look at things you mentioned. You know, GitHub will pull you know GitHub commits, which isn't. A perfect metric by any means. We'll look at active devs. Um, we'll also kind of filter for you know who the committer, uh, who the uh, committers are for some of these commits, and try and you know uh, triangulate some type of you know um, internal activity metric, I guess you could say. Um, but again, part of it comes from part of the project teams, and then you look at things that are like project treasuries, right? And looking how much, um, uh, uh, how many tokens that the um, foundation or the project team actually holds. How is that being managed? Um, and how, how do you I, how do you find that information, right? How, and how do you diligence and 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 know that that information is actually accurate? Yeah, so a lot of it, you know, comes. Some of it can come from the project team. Some of it you can find publicly. I mean, what's what's great about you know this technology in this space, you know, by and large, is it's it's transparent, right? And so you can actually query you know, the, the Ethereum blockchain, for example, and get a lot of this information if you kind of know where to look. So you have to be able to figure out, you know, obviously the the different uh, potential wallet addresses of these project teams um, and, and be able to kind of triangulate and pinpoint, you know, exactly where this is being held. Um, but from there, you can you can have these conversations and understand, again, you know, how that's how that um, capital is being managed, right? And, and looking at something like how much runway does that imply? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of other sources of financing. Um, especially for some of these bigger projects, but but it can certainly be a decent proxy, especially when you go through this wave of you know huge price appreciation in 2017, a bunch of people you know having uh, conducting ICOs, uh, bringing in you know a, a lot of uh, crypto value, I guess you'd say, um, or token value, um, and storing that in their treasuries, and then you see this whole washout of prices, which again, if you think about the time that we're in right now, because this this doesn't necessarily just apply to crypto, even though it's a, a good example. That funding, right, can can dry up very quickly if you know your your token price, your native token price, gets slashed in half in a very short period of time, right? And so, part of our due diligence process as well is 
yes, are you building, you know, okay, if you check all the boxes that we're looking for in terms of, you know, you're building something that we think um, certainly not only adds value, but is differentiated from what's out there now, the token econ checks out, the tech checks out, you know, do you actually have the funding um, to go the distance with this project? And, and or are you going to fall short? Or are you going to need to do some type of, um, you know, financing, uh, or even bridge financing down the road? So there's a number of different things kind of that go into I, that. So I, I'd love to, to dive into this, um, you know, a little bit more, you know, one thing that's, that's always interested me, and I, and I think it's incredibly important, knowing how much r- runway these projects actually have, and knowing if there's any active development and, and knowing if there's anybody there, because I still think there are some networks that will have big runs up in, in price that are that are quite random um, and, and, and that that isn't typically driven by any technology or anything that's being built. So, so my question mm-hmm. for you is, when you're doing research on tokens, how do you value things like treasury management? Um, and, 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 and another question I have is, among the tokens that you've seen, what percentage of those tokens are actually, you know, the, the treasuries of those tokens are actually holding their native tokens um, versus those that raised in Ethereum and Bitcoin and, are, and, have, and have held that since they raised in 2017, 2018 or US dollars? How are these treasuries actually being managed and, and how do you kind of diligence that um, and, and do checks and, 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 you know, evaluate the health of these treasuries? Yeah, it's a great question. And and there's like many things, obviously, it's, it's not binary, right? So there is a spectrum um, that a lot of projects will sit on, on one extreme being essentially just holding the native token itself, right? Which is it, is it, is there a perfect way to put a valuation on that or increase your discount rate by, you know, X percent because you're discounting for a higher risk? Um, no, there's no perfect science to it, but you could lump that into a bucket where it is a riskier, there's a higher probability of risk um, if you're holding the native token for obvious reasons, right? Especially for some of these early stage projects. Some of them, to your point, have moved into ETH or even Bitcoin. The ones in which that have moved into a, a stable coin or some type of stable uh, form of value, the, the dollar being you know, probably the most obvious with dollar stable coins taking off, um, that would be on the kind of the other extreme, right? The lower um, kind of risk, just because again, the world still runs and is priced in fiat currency, right? And and, and we talk about um, you know uh, pricing things in Sats and and talking about you know Bitcoin's relative value, but at the end of the day, you know the dollar is still the dollar, and the dollar is still um, uh, kind of king. And so um, the fact that things and resources that people need, whether it's you know not necessarily just salaries or human capital, but you think about electricity, rent, things of that nature that a lot of projects you know quite frankly need to be able to support themselves, that's paid in fiat, right? So so it's a bit of a little you know technicality or something that you know some people don't necessarily watch for, but it is something I think that's important to keep in mind because again, if you're betting on this project and you and you take a longer term perspective. Um, because we're not, you know, day traders by any means, right? We'll we'll look at things for some of the larger crypto assets, especially Bitcoin, in terms of technicals and trends. And yes, we provide commentary, market commentary on that. But at the end of the day, you know, we're not we're not traders, you know, by nature, right? So a lot of our focus and we think our specialty and advantage is looking at how to value these things, you know, from a longer term uh, investor perspective. And so when you're thinking about it from that from from that from that view. Uh, you have to um, at least have some type of idea of whether or not you know this this uh, project team is going to be able to sustain themselves to not only getting this to launch but after launch what is it, what are the costs to potentially uh, maintain this project it's another reason why i think going back to um, the developer activity uh, commentary or, or topic why a lot of those metrics aren't perfect either is because if you think about the way in which even in the equity markets and and big companies today right your big tech incumbents 
they've been kind of built off of more, um, I'll say intangible value, right? Or, or there's not as much actual physical capital that's required um, to build some of these, you know, literally hundred billion dollar you know, tech companies today. I think it's similar within this space, right? At a certain point, maybe you don't necessarily need uh, as many, um, you know, code updates. Uh, maybe you wouldn't expect, you know, there'd be as many active devs or commits uh, because a project has gotten to a certain point where um, it's running as it's intended. The token economic design is pretty much finalized. Um, it's starting to see user adoption. Then it becomes much more uh, a question of network effects and supply and demand dynamics than it is about actual um, active developer activity, right? So again, it's tough to bucket in one type of metric, you know, dominating all because it depends on what stage the project is in. Um, what the expectations are for future development, and you know, outside of extremes where you have, you know, let's say a hundred million dollar token project that hasn't seen any development in the last, you know, 30, 45, 60 days, um, but is still far from from being completed or, or launching, um, that certainly can be red flag, can raise a red flag. But you know, say it's a it's a perfect metric to look at in isolation. You know, I, I think would be a bit naive too. Yeah, and and one kind of question that I had is is how do you value current technology versus the growth of an adoption of, of, of new technology among these projects, right? You know, do we anticipate that if, you know, a project released a white paper two or three years ago and, and has hit, you know, you know, all 17 things on their roadmap, you know, do you, you know, continue to value that at more just, you know, assuming that there's mm. network growth or do you value that less? And this isn't a question that I've even asked myself. I just kind of thought of it as you were talking. But how do you evaluate, you know, a, a token that's going to continue to invest in active development versus a, a token that that has hit all of their, you know, you know, 15, 16, 17 steps on their roadmap? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a great question. Um, and I would say, Yes, it's dependent, right? Like many of these things, and I and I feel like that's just a, a cop out answer that I keep giving. But it, you do need the proper context around, you know, what the project specifically is and what stage it's in. When it comes to current versus uh, future expectations for tech and the growth of that tech, I think it's important to understand, you know, a what the project is, what the project or the token is trying to do, right? Just because again, you you have the best tech or you're able to implement something that um, was just released uh, and you're able to port that over to your project. If you don't have the right, you know, holder incentives uh, in place, or you haven't thought about, you know, the way in which longer term you're going to either bootstrap adoption or generate or try and uh, generate value or accrue value to this native token, um, for mul for many reasons, right? It can be security. It can be again, this just drives uh, uh, users to want to come in and actually use this because they're attracted to the price appreciation, and then that winds up bringing in more investment. There's there's so many kind of waves. Um, or ways in which price can affect uh, the the longevity or the viability of a project. Um, but when it comes to evaluating, you know, current versus versus future tech, I think the world in which we're going to continue to move towards is is the one of you know composability and interoperability between some of these base layer chains. And then it becomes you know a matter of you know network security being obviously pivotal and and very very important for these kind of base layer one protocols. And then the things built on top of it are leveraging that tech. I think it's going to uh, transition a bit more to the fundamental value around how these token economic uh, systems uh, or, or structures are created, right? And how they actually operate and how they do create these different incentive models. Because again, there's competition constantly popping up in this space and the network effect, the, the, the um, potential um, 
influence that a strong network effect can have, um, especially as these projects get bigger, right? Because the definition of, of that network effect is eventually you could get to a point where um, you hit this almost like escape velocity. I think that is going to become a much more kind of pivotal portion of this once you see um, a lot of the uh, new um, tech that's being developed integrated um, or improved upon from what, what, what we currently have. And so, you know, I, I again, I know it's a, a bit vague in terms of it kind of depends. Um, but to be honest with you, it really does depend well, on... I think the industry is so early that there's just... There inevitably yes. is going to be so many. It depends. Uh, we, 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 you know, I did another interview with, with Katie, who's the head of research at Arco, a, mm -hmm. a hedge fund. Um, and, you know, one question, you know, that, that I asked is, is how do you evaluate different projects? And, and her answer was, it depends because there are just so many buckets of different projects too, right? You have your exchange tokens, you have your gaming projects, you have decentralized storage, you have, you know, you have decentralized uh, liquidity or, pools, right? It's like oracles, these, right? It's it's you've it's got like so it, many, right? And it's it's you know different sectors and different categories of equities are analyzed differently, right? And and you know DraftKings, for example, is killing it, but it's trading at a PE ratio of like a thousand, right? right. And and that's not going to be the same PE ratio for GE, right? Which has been around. I think that for, is. I think that is such a. And I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but this is just how you and I often often go back and forth. I think that is such an important point that you just made in terms of the relative valuation between these different projects and why it does depend on what the uh, token or the project is that you're looking at and even what sector or what um, its intended use case is, is because to that point, right, you you, you wouldn't look at uh, or you shouldn't look at if you're in the equity market, you wouldn't compare a utility, the, the PE ratio of a utility stock to the PE ratio of a large cap tech stock, right? Because what goes into that, you know, valuation or that price multiple is a lot of different expectations, much of which revolve around the the growth expectations of that company, right? That's why you can have something like a DraftKings, you can have something uh, like like in an Amazon or a Netflix, and people you know constantly say, well, the, the PEs are just absolutely insane. They're 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 nosebleed levels, and you say, yeah, but if you look at the kind of future projected you know earnings and cash flow growth that people are are anticipating, you know, not just next year, but three, four, maybe even five years out that PE multiple all of a sudden becomes much more uh, manageable or uh, or much lower compared to the average tech company because, again, you're factoring that long-term growth. So, again, I just think the, the point you just hit on is, is really critical because that goes across you know, whatever asset class or industry you're looking at or whatever security type you're looking at. It's, it's oftentimes not going to be a one-to-one, -one and you have to make sure when you're evaluating different projects that it is a bit on an apples-apples -apples basis. And so one point you hit at, you know, a few minutes ago, and, and I, I wanted to expand on it was, was the idea of supply. And I think this is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing, and, and I will give credit where credit's due. I think Ryan Selkis and, and Dan McArdle at, you know, on chain FX, which became Mazari did a lot of work on this back in the day. And I think they still do some work on it, but it's, it's kind of underappreciated in crypto is, is the idea of, you know, some of these tokens still only have five or ten or fifteen percent of their supply issued, and how do you value that, right? When you're when you're looking at the the long term outlook on a token, you know, with Bitcoin, for example, you have what eighteen million of twenty twenty one million, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tokens you know currently in circulation or that have been issued, but some of these other projects still have you know 
10 times, you know, five times more tokens to be issued? And, and how do you evaluate that? Yeah. And, and really quickly, I will uh, echo your commentary around, you know, what Ryan and, and the Sorry team has been able to build out. I mean, we're huge fans of them, um, you know, both privately and publicly. And, and really, I mean, we leverage, you know, we've leveraged on-chain FX for a while now. So what they've done is, is incredible work for the space. And I would say it's a very controversial concept because, Again, it, it all depends, right? If you look at, oftentimes people talk about a, a token's inflation rate, which, which to be honest, and this might just be the the kind of macro in me, um, the macro guy in me, but but looking at inflation, I don't think that's the per, the, the precise or correct term to use. More so, the issuance rate of these tokens, Remission, right? Yeah, right. But but regardless, right? Let's call it the inflation rate because that's just kind of you know common vernacular at this point. Most people assume that a high issuance rate would be bad, right? It's a, it's a, it's very inflationary in that you know there's so much supply that's going to come to market. Eventually, you're just going to be diluted, and there's a few things that can go into you know trying to value those types of projects. Number one, you have to understand where that project is and what their goal is and what that uh, adoption curve potentially could look like, right? So you have certain projects that are um, uh, purposefully coming out and having you know really high issuance rate, really high issuance rate issuance rates. <laughs> early on in the early days because they want to bootstrap that adoption, right? And they want to generate buzz or they want to reward kind of the, the early stakers or the people who bought into the to the idea and invested them early. And that is, you know, uh, systematically going to decline over time, right? And so that can that can be one way in which that uh, higher issuance rate actually um, can be potentially beneficial, right? Because that will potentially accelerate the adoption and actually get this project, um, maybe gain some momentum that way. On the flip side, you also have to understand what the timing of those are, right? So let's say you've got a project that has, you know, a, a billion potential total supply and only a uh, uh, hundred million have been issued so far. So to your point, you've got another, you know, basically nine X that can be you know, released to the market. Well, what does that issue in schedule look like, right? Is that going to be locked up for the next, you know, 12 months? Is it going to be locked up for the next 10 years? There's a lot of questions and this is we're talking to the team and understanding understanding the levers that a team can pull as well, right? Where Yeah, if I was, they were, I was if just going to add, you know, token burns, for example, right? And we saw that with Stellar, right? Where they went out and, and removed 50% of the supply. So, you know, you know, unlike, you know, Bitcoin, where its token issuance model is, is never going to change, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing that, you know, happen with Ethereum, right? So we're seeing that tokens can change their issuance models. And I think that's kind of the point you're about to about to hit on. Yeah, no, ex exactly. And it's, and it's a lot of what ties back into some of the consulting work that we do is that, you know, there's pros and cons to, to, ever, to, to both sides of this coin, right? You know, for, for uh, lack of a better term, there's, there's, there's pros and cons. There's the one aspect where it's dynamic in that, you know, how, how decentralized, people make the argument, how decentralized can a certain project or protocol be if you're able to actually, you know, wake up one day and uh, change the issuance schedule or do, you know, to, to, to Stellar's point, come out and just buy back, you know, half the supply. If, if you're able to do that, the argument would be it's certainly not decentralized. And again, there's decentralization it's in and of itself is not binary either, right? Something that's completely decentralized, you're going to have a lot of trade-offs with that, that model as well. On the flip side, though, it allows for, I think, more creativity and more innovation around these different economic and token economic structures. Because once you start to see um, you know, if token burns, for example, became really popular or um, these different uh, 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 ways in which you can leverage the token or you, you can have these dynamic issuance rates. If there was one model that started to become really popular or made a lot of sense, the fact that other projects can potentially, um, you know, copy that um, or integrate some of that into their own protocols um, allows for, you know, this, this kind of um, 
large pool of intellectual capital to, you know, elevate the uh, maturity or, or potential value of a lot of the broader kind of token space, right? So people can can learn off of one another. It's, it's kind of the, the nature of the open source uh, nature of the space. And so I think to your point, it's really important to understand, you know, how easy that is for the project teams to be able to do um, and how centralized it is early on. And a lot of projects now are focusing on being you know, really centralized in the early days with plans, putting out plans to decentralize over time as they do gain adoption, right? Because there are a lot of hiccups um, and things that could potentially go wrong as you roll out these different um, technologies and these different uh, uh, main nets. And so, you know, long story short, I think, again, it's important to just understand how in which those things can change and also being almost a student of token economics and understanding how um, and what the kind of new or upcoming popular models are and, and why they make sense, right? And I think that's what's really interesting and, and quite frankly cool about this space is there's just so, there's so many different ways in which you can look at this, right? There's so many different ways in which you could design. If I gave you a blank sheet of paper and said, just design a, a, a new kind of token economic system, right? And you gave a bunch of parameters in terms of what the industry you're going after, what your use case was. If you gave that to 10 people, I mean, 10 people could literally come up with 10 different ways in which you could, you could design that, right? And so I think that's what's also really exciting about the space is that it's constantly evolving and it's very, very dynamic. Yeah, totally. So we, we, we've, we've hit a lot on, on fundamentals, right? Um, and one, one question, you know, very quick, um, that I had is, you know, you mentioned right at the, from the onset, right? You know, this market still it doesn't have defined fundamentals, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the other forces that are at play in this market today? A lot of, I mean, I would say again, not to, to plug you guys twice, but I would say sentiment is certainly, you know, pretty huge. Because you do have, and you, you've seen this time and time again, where you can get some type of, you know, FOMO effect, and that's not to say that I think the sentiment can can quickly turn into um, uh, arguments about manipulation, right? And there's a there's a very big difference between a token that runs up or doubles in price because again, you just have a, a, a surge in demand for maybe a fundamental reason, or maybe just sentiment, or maybe people are just discovering, you know, this this new um, up and coming project. That doesn't necessarily mean that the tokens be uh, being actually manipulated. Um, so sentiment is certainly one of the big ones. I would say things like partnership announcements, which I know you guys track. Those, you know, I think for 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 better have um, started to become less of uh, an impact on price, just because again people are starting to wake up to okay, you have a partnership with let's say Visa, right, or or, or some you know incumbent in some industry. What does that actually mean? How is that going to drive value to the token? So people, you know, again, right, we we use AWS. Does that make us valuable? Right, right, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but but honestly, and so understanding those types of things and seeing how, again, market reactions to those have kind of ebb and flow and which ones are becoming more important, which ones are, are becoming less. You have seen some tokens that have obviously um, uh, run up or, or pumped a bit on, you know, main net announcements or launches, or even to your earlier point about just hitting, you know, key kind of milestones along the project roadmap. It, it sounds like it, it'd be, it would be trivial. And there are, you know, certain cases in which, you know, project teams will push back a certain milestone or, or the roll out an update because, you know, they're adding something or they want to, you know, do a little bit more testing on something. Um, but I would say can long-term consistency and hitting those milestones and staying on track and having the funding to stay on track is certainly something that's really important. Um, so, so, you know, there's a lot of things at play. 
Um, and some of them, again, complain to just, you know, it is a speculative market, right? There's a lot of people that are um, kind of your, your, your crypto day traders, right? And so they're ba- they could basically just be arming across different exchanges, which again, still very fragmented, but that type of play has certainly come down a bit. Um, they could be just looking at things that have, you know, decent liquidity or, or maybe anticipating uh, exchange announcements. Um, so I think you're starting to see people come around to some of these event-driven trades and almost kind of trying to front run some of them. Um, so again, it depends on what the project is and, and, you know, looking at when you do see these big surges, trying to identify what the kind of key catalyst is. Um, and then, you know, potentially looking for trends and saying, you know, I think exchange listings is a, is a great one because that's been going on for, for obviously a while now. Um, looking at how, you know, potential uh, token appreciation occurs. Yeah, 180% on Omisco on Coinbase. Right. Exa- exactly. Exactly. And so, again, to say that that's a fundamental driven, you know, price bump, I mean, obviously, you know, it's certainly not, but there, you could also make the argument, this is not at all making an argument, you know, for them. It's more so for any token that gets listed. You could make the argument that, that, you know, by getting listed on Coinbase, for example, you get not only access to potentially a deeper uh, liquidity pool, but also um, uh, access to that that investor base, right? That's using Coinbase. Mil- and, and millions of people. In. Exactly. And so, so there can be potentially, you know, initial sentiment or event-driven uh, actions or, or things that happen that can lead to, you know, a, a fundamental kind of uh, bull case for something. Um, but the two, again, are, are very dynamic and, and it, it largely depends on, um, you know, the current situation and what these projects are building. So, so three final uh, questions. And, and the first one is just how do, how do you find interesting projects to cover at Delphi? Like, what is the starting point or, or the impetus for researching individual assets? Yeah, so we've got, as I mentioned, we've got a, a screening process that we go through um, because, because one thing that's important to understand about you know, our goal right, and how we make money, and, and again, it's, it's behind a, a research paywall, is we, our goal is to create or generate actionable ideas for our clients. And in order to do that, you have to have a trade-off between things like liquidity, right? So, for example, we've we've kind of uh, uh, gone down the um, altcoin rabbit hole, and we found you know what we think are a number of undervalued crypto assets that we've written extensive research reports on. Um, but within that, you know, we have to identify um, the kind of liquidity profile of these, and maybe even give loose projections around what potentially could create some type of liquidity event, um, whether it is an exchange listing or something of that nature. Um, but it is an important consideration, right? Because if, if we go to a client and say, hey, this is a great new idea, right? On this small crypto asset that you know no one's heard of, but we've got great tech and great token econ. And we go, that's fantastic. Like, how do I buy it? Is there any way? I mean, is it trading OTC? Are there, are there exchanges that actually support this? Are there you know, compliant above board exchanges that support this. Right. Can I you, buy this in the United States? Is it a security? Exactly. No, exactly. And so those types of con- questions you have to consider, right? So we've kind of built that into this, this screening process. Um, and a lot of it's from client feedback too. And there's some clients who say, listen, you know, you give us the ideas and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of figure it out, right? Or we'll keep this on our radar until it has more liquidity. And we'll, we'll keep track of some of the things that you guys are um, um, pointing us to as these maybe fundamental indicators long term. Um, so, so the liquidity is certainly a, a portion of it. 
but also, I mean, we've got a team of, you know, our, our team's actually growing to, uh, to 10 analysts as of this week, actually, which we're really excited about. And part of that, you know, it sounds like a big team, but at the same time, I mean, the space is just so big and, and always constantly changing that we have, each of us has kind of carved out our own, you know, sector niche in which we cover, right? So we have, you know, a few analysts who focus almost exclusively on the DeFi space. And so what they'll do is, is obviously stay abreast on what's happening, kind of the bigger, um, I'll call it, you know, macro type trends within DeFi, but then by understanding where they think DeFi and the space is going and what is needed, both on an infrastructure standpoint, as well as, um, you know, looking at things like decentralized liquidity pools, for example, they will start to kind of craft a, a thesis around, you know, what would be a, a uh, valuable project. And then they'll either go see if someone's doing that already. And if they are, you know, evaluate that project, or it'll be something that's a, a bit more organic or natural where something will start to gain traction um, or something will be, uh, bad mouth in the public or uh, public sentiment will turn against the project. And we'll look at it and say, actually, you know, hold up. We've actually think there's something here um, that some other people are missing. Right. So there's, there's no one uh, perfect way, which again, kind of relates back to the difference between crypto analysts and, and an equity analyst. If you're an equity analyst and you're covering oil and gas, you know, you have your list of companies, you know what you're covering, you know what the metrics are you're looking for. In this space, there's a lot more legwork and a lot more upfront kind of uh, intellectual capital you have to put forth to find right. there's not there's not 50 key metrics that you it, can go across the board on 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 10 different companies or 10 different protocols or foundations and, and evaluate exactly exactly and you also have to have the macro understanding and perspective around you know how even altcoins as a whole trade right or, or we'll just say the crypto market trades as a whole because similar as you would if you were an equity analyst Oil and gas just so happens to be a really um, perfect example right now. When you saw oil absolutely, you know, fall off a cliff uh, several weeks ago, and you actually had, you know, negative oil prices on f- negative oil price futures. I know, you know, a handful of people who literally specifically cover oil and gas, and I remember talking to them. And if your sector or industry is out of favor from a macro perspective, it doesn't really matter if you have like if you have the best in class, you know, um, um, uh, ENP company within that space that sector is just out of favor from a macro perspective. And so understanding, you know, and bringing this back to the, the crypto space, if, if the crypto market itself is trending lower, right, it's almost like a game of, well, we're picking the best from, you know, the best of this class, but still the longer or broader macro trend is pushing, you know, all crypto assets uh, uh, lower for at least the foreseeable future, right? Which you saw a lot of in, in 2018, especially towards the end of 2018. So I think that perspective um, is also, you know, really critical and something that we try to apply um, to the space because it can long-term create opportunities, but in the short run, you have to understand what some of these potential um, influences or factors on price are going to be. So, what has you most worried about the crypto space, uh, if anything, and and what has you most excited? And that can be, you know, something broad. That could be, you know, I know, you know, you love talking macro, so that could be the world <laughs> crashing and burning and. You know the Fed printing a bunch of dollars, and somehow the stock market is is staying alive. To you know a specific project, to something related to mainstream adoption, but but anything you know in particular that has you worried or has you excited about the space? Yeah, I would say what worries me most is much more from you know a, much more of an exogenous shock um, type of event, right? So. You know, I think regulation by and large is good for this space and it's required if we expect this space to uh, mature and we we expect more institutions and sophisticated investors to come into it. We have to have the infrastructure that supports that, right, from a a compliance standpoint. And 
But that being said, I think government intervention, right? And this is where it gets extreme. I actually don't think the more and more time goes on, I, I think this is a lower and lower probability. But hypothetically, if you had, let's say, you know, G20 company or countries come out and all simultaneously, you know, ban the holding trading um, of crypto, Bitcoin, the entire kind of ecosystem, to say that it would completely collapse, right? Bitcoin would Bitcoin itself, the network can, would continue to run, right? You can't shut Bitcoin down. We know that, but to say that it wouldn't have a, a very adverse uh, impact on price, I think again is also naive, right? Because then you, if it's illegal to hold and trade Bitcoin, if it's illegal to even invest in Bitcoin, you know, my mother's not going to do it. Your your RIAs, your private wealth managers, financial advisors, no one's going to touch this, and so you you essentially block off a huge potential. Um, holder base or investor base. So that's probably the biggest kind of longer term worry that I have. Because um, again, the more you get into the space, the more you talk to people, you know, there's a lot of problems that in the short term we might have, but people are finding solutions around. What makes me most excited, and I will, as, as, as you probably expect, take a bit of a macro focus. And it's not so much from um, the way in which the world is is trending. Because again, you know, you know, I could talk to on blue in the face about you know, the rising debt levels and where, you know, Bitcoin can kind of fit into, um, you know, an, a multi-asset yeah, Go listen portfolio. to the 500 other uh, <laughs> yeah. Kevin Kelly podcasts for that perspective. <laughs> right. So, so I'll leave, I'll leave that at the door here. What I think, and this is actually something we're doing a bit, I'm doing a bit more work around just to put the, the macro um, case or perspective around it is, if you look at what's happening today, and this isn't to get into the politics of inequality, right? It's more so to talk about what we can do going forward. There's, it's not exactly rocket science um, to understand how we got to where we are today, right? And so I think this concept of coming out of this post kind of COVID world, what I expected to see more in, uh, an increase in kind of industry consolidation, big tech to gain even more power, right? Because again, if you look at the stock market, people say, oh, how could the stock market be up? But you know the underlying uh, economic fundamentals are, are <laughs> in the shitter, for lack of a better word. There's a huge disconnect because a lot of those big tech companies that that index is so tech heavy now actually benefit from that, right? Amazon is a discretionary company to a large degree, but um, you know your Googles, your your, your Apples, your uh, your Netflix, your Amazon. I mean, a lot of these companies are actually benefiting from what's going on right now. And again, not to say it's in a malicious intent, they're just kind of taking advantage of the situation in front of them. What I think we're getting to a, a breaking point and what this will accelerate us towards is a real discussion around the um, kind of core issues or fundamental reasons why we've seen income and wealth inequality continue, continue to widen. And one of the things that I'm really excited about in the kind of longer term um, Web3 uh, decentralized movement is I think when you talk about, you know, equal opportunity and creating different you know ways in which people can make both passive income and just ways in which the future of work is trending, these types of permissionless systems, right, I think are going to create an immense amount of opportunity for people who, again, the playing field is, it becomes much more level, right? So if you're, and it's not to say it won't require work, but if you're uh, an, an early um, investor in some of these, you know, different protocols, or you happen to start running a miner or a validator or, or something for some of these early protocols, and you happen to be correct and you've done your homework on it, or you're able to provide some type of you know, supply side work, whether it's computing power or eventually maybe even some, some um, softer skills like ex specialized expertise. I think the way in which Web3 is going to trend and what it's going to do is open up a whole lot of doors for people who otherwise 
um, have been left behind because a lot of wealth has really been concentrated and continues to concentrate around, you know, the, the today's really large incumbents, right? And part of that's network effects, but part of that's just market dominance. And so long story short, I think the long-term macro narrative for crypto and what this space can provide, I think will actually go a long way in terms of not obviously solving, you know, income or wealth inequality, but will certainly can push us in the right direction and help be part of the solution to get us back to a more you know equitable and, and, and quite frankly, fair world. So to, to lighten the mood a little bit here at the end, what has been either the weirdest uh, or most interesting thing that you've done or had to do while in quarantine? Or what has been the, the highlight of your uh, quarantine or coronavirus experience? Oh, that's a good one. I feel like all these days blend together, right? So the most interesting thing you know, that you do is like, uh, I made a great dinner. So, you know, that's, that's chalked that one up for me. No, I think, uh, the weirdest, I finished a whole, a whole Hulu season in seven hours. It's a new record. Oh yeah. That's yeah. That, that's, that's par for the course on the weekends. One of the, I guess, uh, quirkier, interesting things, uh, a few of us actually, a few friends and I created a, a wine tasting club, a virtual wine tasting club, something I've always just kind of wanted to to get more into and either haven't had the time or just um, never really got around to it. And so we started doing like many other people, these kind of zoom happy hours and started joking around about, you know, becoming these wine connoisseurs. And so we actually turned it into something. So once a week we'll all hop on and we'll all buy, you know, three, uh, three bottles of wine, whether it's a, a, a Pinot um, or a cab or something of that nature. And we'll actually go through, you know, wine tasting exercises, which has been pretty fun, pretty interesting. Certainly no connoisseur by any means or, or, or a Psalm by any means, but learn, <laughs> learning a bit. Delphi's resident sommelier. Kevin yeah. Kevin. Yeah. The other thing, the other, the exciting thing, most exciting thing is uh, pull trigger on, on getting a dog. Um, which actually I, I know of quite a few people who have done that because again, you're home quarantined. Yeah. So bringing, uh, bringing him home in about four weeks. So couldn't be more excited about that, but no, those are, those are kind of the two, I would say two big highlights. <laughs> so everybody go follow Kevin on Twitter. Kevin, what's your Twitter? So everybody can get dog pictures in a few weeks. Oh yeah. I'll bombard. Um, Kevin underscore Kelly underscore Roman numeral two. So two eyes. And where can people find out more about Delphi? Yeah, so easiest way, you can go to our site, uh, DelphiDigital.io. Um, we're actually, good good plug here, we're um, completely revamping and redesigning our site and our members portal, which we're open to have live by the, uh, the end of this month. So um, stay tuned for that. We'll have a big announcement there. But also, I mean, our, our company's on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. Um, drop any of us a note, you know, follow any of our analysts, reach out to any of us. We're, we're always love talking crypto with, you know, clients, people in the space, people are just interested. So uh, we're we're very friendly. None of us bite. So so please you know, reach out. All right. Well, th- thanks so much, Kevin. Really appreciate it, Josh. Great conversation.